since we're speaking about early intervention, how early is too early? Is there such thing as too early? This is something I think people often think about. And I've heard parents even say to me like, oh, he can't come. He's way too young. What are your thoughts? I think like for so long, we used to think of early intervention as, you know, if you start before three, um, that's great. And, and you've got a really good start. Um, there's a great paper that came out in 214 out of um, the New England Center um, by McDonald et al. And so what they looked at is what are the outcomes for kids that start intervention between 18 and two years versus kids that start between two years and two and a half and kids that start between two and a half and three. So before we would think all of that's great, it's early intervention. What they found is that kids that start before two years of age, 90% of them made what was considered significant gains in their first year of treatment. When they waited to between two and two and a half, that number dropped to 70%. So 70% between two and two and a half still made what was considered significant gains. From two and a half to three, that number dropped to 30%. So how, I don't remember how they were measuring significant gains, um, but only 30% were achieving those really like astronomical outcomes in the first year if starting after two and a half. And so what we see there is just what's happening in the brain that's making you know, um, treatment so it's kind of salient during that time and before two um, and why we want to capture that time. So between like zero and three, the brain, and this will kind of get into the neuroplasticity, but the brain's going through the most rapid transformation in all like postnatal development, right? So every day the neural connections are being built. And then, you know, between two and three, a lot of them are being pruned for the ones that aren't used um, and new connections are being formed. But then after three, it actually begins to slow down already. And so I look at it like, like city planning. So if you were going to build um, a city or design highways for a city, is it easy to do, is it easier to do um, just as the city's building and be part of it then where you can really help map out those neural connections or to come in after all that network's been made, all the roads have been made, all the buildings are being made and then to come in and try and map out those, um, those roads, right? And so those are like neural connections. So once those neural connections are already formed, after two and a half and three, um, it's much harder, it takes more effort and more time um, to make changes compared to being there while they're being formed. I love analogies, <laughs> they're my favorite. Um, that makes so much sense. That is just such a clear way of thinking about that. Can you talk a little bit more about the neuroplasticity of toddlers? You said the year one to two is very, very important. Is this I mean, I'll let you. Um, yeah. So between zero and three, super important. Between zero and 12 months, um, you're gonna, there's going to be barriers just based on motor skills, um, oral motor skills of what you can actually teach. So you can model a ton. Um, and there's definitely things that you can do. Um, but you're limited to what you can kind of expect from just typical development, zero to 12 months. But as we mentioned, like at 12 months is that explosion of skills between just um, more goal-directed reaches, more ability to um, engage in different forms of communication with following gestures and um, walking and um, you know, being able to stack blocks. And so there's a, a bigger repertoire of things that they can imitate. And so that's kind of the year that um, prior to that, yeah, it's, it's just hard. The child's you know, developing you know, their motor skills and their bilateral coordination. But 
once that you hit that explosion of skills, being there during that time is so important. There's, um, there was a study out of Romania that was actually just looking at um, kids in an orphanage and um, how important the enriched environment was just on IQ levels and um, communication. And so they looked at the kids that had been adopted out by 18 months versus the ones that didn't get adopted till two and a half. So the ones that didn't get adopted to two and a half would be considered kind of um, involved in the less enriched environment. Let me see if I can pull up what the stats were, but the IQ scores of the ones that did get adopted sooner, I think it was like 15 points higher um, had better language, had, um, so it just had this kind of snowball effect by, of what's happening in the brain by starting early and making sure that the environment's full of kind of um, that enriching stimuli during that time. Otherwise it, it does get a bit harder to kind of undo some of those connections or rewire the brain that way. I feel like I'm learning so much from you normally when I'm in, when I'm interviewing, I'm thinking about what I'm gonna ask next and I'm just listening to you like, wow. <laughs> all these studies <laughs> yeah okay so we've talked a lot on parents involvement and we talked about how it's key part of early intervention how it can help with generalization you use a parent mediated intervention model are there any other benefits that you think are key and you want to share just because i think this is a really important topic so often um, we talk about parent involvement and we talk about parent coaching and we talk about that carryover so could you speak a little bit more on that topic yeah so training parents it's as if you were training anyone and that it, it requires a lot more than just kind of explaining the whys to it, right? Like we don't learn very much through a lecture style, like here's the information. They'll pull a bit of that away, but it's very hard to actually apply that information. So I use a behavior skills training approach with the parents, which has the four components. So instruction first, modeling, rehearsal, and feedback. And so that's um, a research-based way of training kind of any sort of skills um, with typical or atypical developing populations. So what you wanna do first, like the first component is the instruction. So this is what we're gonna do. This is why, this is the rationale. This is how we're gonna do it. Um, but that's very little of what the training is actually composed of. The second part's modeling. And that's where as a like clinician, it's great to really hone your skills so that you can jump in with any child and demonstrate what that will look like. Um, and so a lot of the therapists that I supervise, they're always so eager to get to an analyst level or consultant level so that they can, you know, just come in and give the advice without working directly. And I'm like, no, you have to work. You know, I work so hands-on all the time. And I think a big part is so that you can confidently model what you're preaching, right? If you're giving all this advice and you can't jump in and do it yourself, the parents aren't going to buy in. So if you say, yeah, just withhold it till they look and it will be fine. And then you try to do it and, you know, it leads to a 30 minute meltdown. Like that's, you know, it's humbling and it's good learning for everyone that, you know, we need to like problem solve differently. Um, so being able to model what it looks like, we also learn so much from watching someone do it compared to just being told. Then what I really found too with my research is the next two parts are absolutely key for actual behavior change. So rehearsal is getting the parents in there and practicing themselves. And so a lot of parents will watch you do it and nod and be like, okay, I get it. And then you're like, okay, so your turn. Um, and they're, you know, they're tentative or, you know, 
And there's a lot of rapport building that's going to go with this to begin with and being able to coach parents at an authentic level and be able to give feedback because getting to that point is what's going to make the teamwork um, or function so much better. And then the last step is that feedback. So a lot of times I'll record the parents and then we'll watch it after and we'll talk about what was great, what they can do differently. And then they've got to practice with me there. They've got feedback. Now they get to practice it all week. Then when I come back next week, they demonstrate it, we record it again, we make sure they've mastered that skill before going on. And so that's how the parents actually demonstrate acquisition of that skill. And so what I've seen with a lot of other parent training programs where they fall short is really that hands-on with the parent, showing, practicing with the parent, getting feedback on their performance, um, modifying their performance again. So. Um, if you're going to do that, if you're going to add parent training um, or parent coaching, the rehearsal and feedback, I would say, are the most important um, components. With that, you really want to make sure you've built a really strong rapport. Um, and I feel being able to model your skills helps to build a rapport. Um, they have more trust in what you're saying when you can actually show that you do it and when you're knowledgeable. Um, but, you know, developing those personal soft skills um, knowing how to deliver feedback so parents don't take it, you know, don't get defensive. Um, it's hard enough anyways when you're going to give them feedback on how they're parenting with their child, right? So you really want your message to land in a motivating, positive way where they want to implement it rather than a way that they're going to get defensive and not want to come see you again. Okay, so to recap that, first instruction, then modeling, rehearsal and then feedback it makes so much sense because it's it's you're really targeting every learner type right so yeah. you, have, you have the they're listening the auditory you have the hands-on you can they can watch you visual and then they get that feedback so it makes sense to include every part and even me I'm thinking like I wonder how often you like how often even I give that feedback or I do the modeling and it's like thinking about e each of those steps yeah yeah, can make yeah. a big difference. And it's so much easier. It's like kind of like when you take a social psychology class and everything the, le the lecturer or the prof says, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. But then like you need to explain it, right? And so, or like they say, you don't really fully understand something until you can, you know, teach it. And so with this, I'd say until you can model it. And so watching someone do it, it can look a lot easier. I think there's so many things like we probably both have. Um, I've been in this field like over a decade. And working, you know, at least 40 hours a week and so much hands-on with children that there's probably these split-second subtleties that we do where it can make it look really, really easy. But, you know, for someone watching, then they jump in to do it and they're struggling, you know, to get their child's attention or to get the same responding. And so that's where having a great relationship where you can give feedback and you can model again and you can say, okay, try it this way, try it this way, you know, and then just persisting in that, like, a child might not learn it the first three times you do it, but how to persist with, you know, imitation, you know, in many different ways over the course of the week in many different environments and um, imitations and interesting, actually so many of them are interesting, but um, finding things that the child's motivated to imitate, right? So doing something really novel that they've never seen before that they'll want to try compared to just like, I'm banging, you know, banging something random like the child might be able to imitate but they might look at that and be like cool okay I'm going to keep doing my thing but you do something that they've never seen before like drop a car down a ramp and it you know falls into a bucket of water and then leave a car there and see if they're willing to imitate that that at least is going to 
put them in the best opportunity to, to be able to try that skill because we know it's something that's exciting. Um, one of the, the very first lesson I always do with parents, um, and it's very like similar to Denver model, is just that find the smile. Like find five new ways to make your child smile and laugh. Um, I think by the time that they've come for help, they are pretty stressed. They are not having fun during play. And so they're, you know, they've got their box of toys and they're like, look at this, look at this. And the child's off, you know, doing their own thing. And so first it's just that re-rapport building with your child of have fun with them. So what are five things like, and I've had parents get so creative in that week, like they'll go to the dollar store and they'll get like a feather duster and they create a game with like chase, you know, tickling the child with the feather duster or new sensory social games like um, Superman or whatever. And so just get your child laughing is in many different ways before you even think about teaching because as soon as you've got them laughing that's where the engagement is and that's where they're going to be most motivated um, to learn so after we've got find the smile then we really work on the following the lead and so sit back and observe what they're doing where they're interested and now how can we join them and make that more fun with us there if we join them and add demand that is not fun <laughs> we're making their play less fun right so what can we do? We can add really fun noises. We can add those buckets of water. We could add shaving foam for it to go through. But how do we make whatever they're doing, because that's where their interest is, more fun with us there and not less fun and not demanding? And so what I see so much with the parents is they're trying so hard, but it's just those small, subtle changes of you're trying to get them to come to you to play with something that they're not showing interest in or you know, we're going to them and now we're adding 10 different demands in like, where's the duck? Give me this, give me that. And, you know, of course they're just going to keep wandering away. Like that's, that's not fun. Um, and so really working on, um, yeah, following their lead, following their interests and keeping it fun and engagement and prioritizing the engagement over um, responding for sure. Like it's better to keep their interest than worry about follow through at that point. Thank you so much for just sharing all that because that was just, there were so many things you just said that I was like, I just want this to be like on a, on a loop. Um, so the for, listeners can't see, but I'm wrestling my puppy at I the know, same time. So. We have a very cute uh, dog joining us. <laughs> yeah. He's a third guest. Definitely um, an attention seeker for sure. I, I remember one of my profs, in my master's program, she said, if a child isn't smiling, you're starting at the wrong level. And she felt very strongly about that. She was like, and that goes kind of hand in hand in a way with following their lead. Like if they aren't interested or motivated or having fun, it's just going to make everything a lot more challenging. With some kids, of course, it is harder to find things that they're interested in, mm -hmm. but that's why just observing them and figuring out, even I find when I have kids coming in for the first few sessions, I'm trying to also get to know, like, what do you like? What makes you laugh? Like what, you know, and trying to figure that out. I think it's so important. Well, I think like it makes sense for sure of like, just making it enjoyable but actually when you look at it too even from a neuropsych position i don't know if you know um the author sean aker he has a great ted talk um but all on positive psychology and the happiness advantage and when our brain's happy we're releasing dopamine which turns on all the learning centers in our brain when we're like negative neutral or stressed 
those shut down and especially stress shuts it down completely, right? So our brains shut down learning when we're stressed. When we're happy, our like learning centers are turned on. We're more alert. We're more productive. We're quicker um, at cognitive um, processing. And so getting a child in that state before you begin learning. And I think about that, like when I um, teach with my students at CAP, I always show them this TED talk because I think it's a life skill of just realizing that like what's happening with the neurotransmitters and how we can leverage um, kind of dopamine and serotonin to make it easier for us to learn rather than stressing out about it, which makes it even harder to learn. And so I look at kids that way, like if he's not having fun, his learning centers in our brain are not receptive to whatever we're teaching. I haven't listened to that TED talk. I'm going to do that after. I'll leave it in the description yeah. of this podcast. Yeah. If anyone wants to listen to One it. One of the most watched TED talks ever. I've probably watched it literally 20 or 30 times. Like the guy's hilarious. Um, but it's just so good. And he's written a few books too. He's a Harvard professor in social psychology. Um, he's brilliant. But I love, I really love, positive psychology and how much we can incorporate that just into our outcomes and into um, the work that we do both with our own like self-care as well as like our clients as well mm -hmm. there's a lot of overlap with act as well in that too the mindfulness and the self-care it's like not only do we want them to be having fun so they will engage with us and so there are learning and teachable moments even within that so we need to be motivated to even engage but yeah. we also I want them to be having fun because it will literally help them learn if they're having yeah. fun. Yeah. And the clinician's going to have more fun. Like how fun is it when you just have a great session and your child laughs the whole time and they're like, or they're so excited to see you. Um, you know, it just, we're actually going to be more responsive because, you know, they're having more fun as well. Right. It will just be, um, we're having more fun too. That's turning on our learning centers. It means we're going to be, um, you know, our cognitions processing quicker we're going to be more creative we're going to be more productive all in that time as well um so it really turns it into a much more um like positive transactional cycle where it just keeps building on each other wow okay well um, <laughs> the last thing i kind of want to talk to you about is is just if there's any clinicians listening what, so if clinicians are wanting to learn more about working with infants and toddlers pre-diagnosis, so we talked about that earlier, would yeah. you recommend any resources out there? Yeah, so Sally Rogers, who does Early Start Denver Model, um, she's one of the pioneers that started with pre-diagnostic, and so she's got a study, it was called um, An Infant Start, a pilot study, um, and so she's got a program, you have to early start certified I think to do the infant start program but at least there's there's some resources there um, there's a great there's another group of Canadian researchers that I absolutely love out of um, the Bloorville Toronto Kids Hospital um, so there's Jessica Bryant and Lonnie um, Zweigenbaum and they have a program called the social ABCs and so it's very similar it's a 12 session parent mediated teaching those skills and they've been um, hugely important with all the research with, with early signs. Um, so social ABCs, infant start, um, Connie Casseray, she has the Jasper model and it, it, there is some overlap there. So it's a, again, a more naturalistic um, developmental behavior intervention. That's great. Um, people, I'm going to be releasing some courses soon on my website. So dramytanner.com. Um, but people are welcome to, to contact me and I can get them in touch. I've mentored um, some people or even just consulted um, 
for some families because oftentimes um, because the prevalence rates are much higher for symptom or for siblings um, when a child already has or a parent already has a child on the spectrum and they have another child um, they might start to notice the signs much earlier and so I've had a lot of consultants reach out like okay they've got a nine-month-old son um, you know can you consult with us and give us some strategies or, or that so um, I don't know of anyone else really doing this in the province maybe the up clinic out of um, the Pacific Autism Center I know they were actually starting that and I know Lori Vismara who's also heavily involved with the early start Denver model she's one of the board members I think for the up clinic so that would make sense why they're doing some of that as well. But yeah, there's not a ton of resources. We are a bit trailblazing right now of just getting the word out there. There's gonna be a ton of need for disseminating information to pediatricians so they're more aware of how important offering an alternative to wait and see is. That waiting six months from one and a half to two is a really, really bad idea. Being quick at identifying the early signs for them because um, that's often what, as we talked about, the parents go there they're concerned, but if a pediatrician says, no, don't worry about it, you know, as a parent, you think, okay, I was just overreacting. Like they say, it's fine, don't worry. And so there's a lot of need to disseminate that information to those um, kind of first responders for that um, so that, that they have the information of um, what's even available out there. Like I know sometimes pediatricians, they might have concerns too, but if they're like, well, we can't diagnose them till 18 months, and I don't know of anything else that you can do, like all there is is wait and see. So if there's more information out there that there is an alternative, um, that it doesn't look, you know, drastically different than working with a two and two and a half year old, um, you know, we're modifying the goals a bit to their motor abilities, their language abilities. Um, but, you know, it's still very play-based. Um, so yeah, there's, um, I feel like I'm just rambling now, but there's, um, yeah, if they reach out and find a mentor in it, um, if they've already got experience in early intervention, it's not a huge leap. It's more just tweaking a little bit of their practice. Mm -hmm. And those resources that I said, like I'll get them started in that direction and finding a mentor in it. All right. Well, thank you for sharing all those resources. Thanks for coming on. I learned so much. So I, I yeah, I'm sure everyone will really enjoy this. Um, where can people find you? And yeah, let, let us know if there's anything else you wanted to share about anything um, programs you're running or anything like that. Yeah, I'm not super active on social media, but I do have a professional account at uh, on Instagram at Dr. Amy Tanner. I have a website, www.dramytanner.com. They will be releasing programs. I'm hoping to get those finished over December as things slow down a bit more. But yeah, those are the two places that I'm most active on that they can reach out to. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks so much, Shannon. All right. And I'll see everybody next Monday.